Tom Dawkins leads by example. He helps others build social enterprises by building them himself. He is as widely read as he is travelled, and he does it with a big smile and an infectious sense of passion for his work and for those around him. He's a social entrepreneur, and he's the co-founder of a platform called Start Some Good. Its mission is pretty self-explanatory, really, and it's well aligned with what the Good Future podcast is all about. My name is John Treadgold, and I'm here to ask the big questions about the future of sustainable business, the new economy, and how your investment decisions, no matter how big or small, can have an impact. Tom has been a change maker from the outset. His parents were big advocates for working in a job that has purpose and reflects your values, and he took it to heart, busily building not-for-profits and social enterprises as soon as he left uni. And he was soon drawn to Silicon Valley, a place where there's plenty of action, but it's here he had a pivotal revelation. He found a place where they embrace failure, a community that recognizes that failure is simply the price you have to pay to achieve truly transformational innovation. And it's with this toolkit that he and his American co-founder launched their own platform called Start Some Good. Tom explained the genesis of the company, its impact, and his ambitions going forward. We dig deep. We veer outside the lines talking about the funding and investment landscape in Australia, in particular, the lack of very early stage angel investors offering funding to social enterprises, and the lingering reality that there's far more support for social enterprises that have a not-for-profit structure. But if you're a social enterprise that is for-profit, then there's a lot less support. We dig into the solutions and how Tom's working hard to raise awareness inside and outside the sector. And one key point to raise there, and something that wasn't included in the podcast, is the fact that only 25% of Start Some Goods work is focused on the fundraising platform. The majority is working directly with companies and governments to stimulate and grow the innovation ecosystem. All right, well, I want to dive into the conversation. I learned a lot, and I really hope you do too. Let me know your thoughts through a message on my website, johntreadgold.com, or leave us a review in iTunes, because that's the best way to spread the word and help other people find the podcast. Also, for this one, our conversation actually continues after the closing credits. There's a little Easter egg there that includes Tom getting quite deep and philosophical about the idea of change, and that the future is being written right now, in the present, with each and every decision and action we take. So on that note, here we go. Tom, I'm going to jump right in here. We were always agitating for change. What, what were you like at school? Were you the one getting all the kids fired up when they banned poke in the canteen? Eventually, but I didn't start out that way. I started out kind of really struggling at school, to be honest. I went to a selective high school, but then was bottom in the class at that school, 179th in maths in year eight out of 180, and similar in English. So I was having a really hard time, actually, and um, I was being bullied, and in general, school was hard work. I had no sense of direction. 
to be honest. And partly that was the great privilege of my upbringing, which was to have two parents who were very purposeful in their work, very mission-driven, very passionate. And so I grew up with kind of a conception of work as a place through which you live your values, a place through which you make an impact on the world. I never thought of work as kind of just where you earn the income to then do the things you really want to do. That left me a bit unmoored. I didn't just have that traditional work hard, go to uni, get a degree, get a job, it'll all be all right. I'm like, no, that's not what I want. But what do I want? I don't know. My parents were both in the public sector. So my dad was a town planner and then an academic uh, and very passionate about the role of the built environment in building communities and, you know, the impact that the built environment has on equality, access and opportunities. And my mum is in public broadcasting, spent almost her entire career, like one of those old school career paths where she started as a graduate um, assistant out of university into the ABC and then became a research assistant and then became an associate producer and then became a producer and then jumped on air and was a reporter and possibly I've got the order here wrong, but eventually made it up into management. Um, and it was her job that actually moved us from Western Australia to Sydney when I was 10, when she became the, the manager of ABC Radio New South Wales and continued her ascent from there through most of her career before ultimately ending up at the Department of Women and running a, running a theatre company as her final act. And so the entrepreneur lifestyle seems to match pretty closely with that. You never fell into the standard corporate work flow. Have you ever worked in an office? Yeah, I worked in a few offices. Neither my sister or I nor, nor my parents have a lot of private sector experience, to be honest. I've worked for, not including Start Some Good, which is a for-profit social enterprise. I've only worked for a, a non-mission-driven for-profit for one year of my life which was in the publishing industry. My first job out of university was helping set up and launch a couple of magazines. Well, that's it. And it seems like you really engage with the media side of things. Is that your sort of key skill set that you bring to your work? No, I don't think that's it exactly. Although I like to think I'm pretty good at writing and talking and making content. But I wouldn't call that my core skill. I don't know. I have I have one of those funny kind of generalist bundles of, of skills that you get when you spend all your time setting up projects. You do a bit of HR and a bit of marketing and probably a lot of fundraising. The thing I enjoy most is probably actually being in a room with people teaching them. I really love running workshops, speaking to audiences and, and also just working one-on-one -on -one with social entrepreneurs. And we do increasing amounts of that at Start Some Good, which has been really satisfying. The larger part of my job, though, is partnership development, which in some ways is sales, weirdly enough. It's kind of not my, my self-conception of myself as a salesperson, but it really is what I spend the majority of my time doing is, is, you know, pitching us to potential partners and funders and as well as just trying to sell ideas. I'm definitely in the mm. business of trying to sell the idea of social enterprise and help people understand, I think, the role that business can play. And definitely. I think that's really interesting what you say about the challenge of being a generalist and, and having lots of different interests. That certainly is something I deal with. And that's why I love this podcast, because I get to yeah. ask lots of different people, lots of different questions, and my mind always runs off in tangents. And that's what podcasts are great for. So we can use that skill set. I wanted to sort of look at some of your older projects, but let's jump to start some good to give people an introduction to that. How did that project get underway? There's a real through line with everything I've done from kind of discovering my purpose in late high school through to what we're doing now at Start Some Good. But to kind of skip right to the chase, I was in San Francisco. I spent four years in the US, the first two in Washington, D.C., working for an organization called Ashoka, who are, are not so well known in Australia, but are, are a terribly interesting organization that literally invented the phrase social entrepreneurship about 40 years ago. And so we're literally like, the OGs of the social entrepreneurship sector in terms of advocating for unearthing, funding, investing, supporting, networking social entrepreneurs so they could create a bigger impact. That initial experience, I think, pulled my perspective up into a more systemic level. I'd founded 
three not-for-profits and a couple of social enterprises back then. So I'd been in like the trenches, raising money, pitching ideas, building teams, my whole adult life at that point. But I had no real perspective as to whether my experiences were representative of what other people were experiencing in the sector or whether, you know, was I finding fundraising hard because I'm no good at it or because it's actually hard or because there's actually just not much out there and people aren't looking for what I'm offering, etc. And so that time at Ashoka gave me the chance to kind of pull my perspective up to a global level and to think about some of the big trends in social entrepreneurship and, and social change. And then I landed in San Francisco where I was setting up an office for a DC-based startup before ultimately working for a company called Hope Lab in Silicon Valley who builds social change computer games. And while I was there, I became really fascinated by why is Silicon Valley Silicon Valley? Why is this the kind of greatest global concentration of innovation and entrepreneurship at the moment? And there's lots of historical factors for that, but the particular element that I became really fixated on was the availability of risk-tolerant capital, that within the Valley there is a, a culture of investing in risk and an understanding of the trade-offs that risk involve, the risk and reward profile of going early, and an acceptance that when you invest in new ideas, the majority of them fail. And that's okay, so long as those that succeed are making such a big impact, either economically or perhaps socially, that it kind of justifies all the expense. And it really clarified for me what I'd been finding so frustrating over the previous 15-odd years in the social impact sector, which is that the social impact sector is essentially a world of all VCs with no angel investors. So for anyone who's not, I'm sure all your listeners are, but very broadly, the investment ecosystem in Silicon Valley or anywhere really, there's two very broad buckets of investors. Angel investors, usually spending their own money and going early, literally investing in companies that are not yet investable. They don't yet have any of the, the data or metrics to prove investability, but they have something that's obviously sufficient for that person to take a punt on them, a great team, an interesting idea, an evolving market, etc. And then there's VCs, venture capitalists. They're usually investing other people's money. And so they do so not based on their own, you know, idiosyncratic interests and, and, and hunches, but on data. They make sensible decisions. So they invest in companies that have proven themselves investable by actually having product market fit, traction, real customers, revenue, growing revenue, etc. And so they invest larger amounts of money at much lower risk for much lower returns. And I realized that the, the social impact sector, that's, that's, that's where everyone sits in our sector, that we're a world of VCs with very few angels, whether they're foundations or corporates or governments, everyone wants to invest in things that are already proven to work. And while that sounds sensible, that is not, of course, how you in, invent the future. It would be like we, if we only invested in scientific experiments where the scientists could articulate exactly what the outcome was going to be in advance. That's not how science happens. Science, you spend money on discovering whether it can work. It's not how startups are changing the world either. Almost any company that's making like a truly transformational difference on the world today, and they're almost all angel funded at first. The paradox of investment is you're almost never investable if you've never raised investment. To come back to the social sector, that has really stymied our ability to innovate because all the key funders, the vast majority of the money in the sector, wants that evidence, that evidence that costs money, that requires investment to actually gather. We need to be able to run these social impact experiments. As I was thinking about this, I looked around. I thought, who's doing a great job of supporting innovation, of working in solidarity with the new? And I thought Kickstarter's doing an amazing job of that, actually. A lot of my friends, you know, I have kind of half my friends might be kind of social entrepreneurially inclined. The other half are mostly creatively entrepreneurially inclined. Artists and DJs and festival promoters and so on and lots of Burning Man aficionados. And so as Kickstarter began to grow in 2009, I started getting a lot of requests. And I really enjoyed the process of supporting my clever friends at such an early stage 
to help them make awesome art or awesome experiences. And it didn't take long for a light bulb to go off in my head when I said, this is what we need in the social sector as well. Uh, an organization and a platform that is dedicated on helping people, what we used to say, go around the gatekeepers, go around the big yeses, and instead build a community based on small yeses that can fuel the work you're trying to create. And so that's what led us to launch startsomegood.com as a place where people can kind of propose interesting new ideas, hopefully rally a community around that vision and raise the funds they need, often to implement pilots or experiments or to launch a new product to help gather that evidence they need to then go on to the more major funders in our sector. That's really great, Tom. I really appreciate that overview of, of what makes Silicon Valley unique. I think that's really important. And the fact that we see the successes, but we forget that there's far more failures and that that's really important from that scientific perspective. But that's what really builds the ecosystem, all of those people there. And I guess the people that fail feel that they're part of the ecosystem because they contributed. They've said, yep, this doesn't work. So that's one more tick Exactly. Like so, a scientist who runs an experiment that doesn't work doesn't feel like he's failed. He's made a really significant, mm. he has made a really significant step forward and has added to the sum total of human knowledge. That's so right. has every failed company. So has every yeah. failed foundation or social enterprise. The problem though, I mean, or rather the challenge is your attitude around failure. And so I think part of why Silicon Valley works is this attitude that embraces failure. If you've failed twice with a startup in Silicon Valley, you're probably more likely to raise, you know, you've lost investor money twice over. You're probably more likely now to raise money the third time than if you hadn't. Because many of those investors will say, well, gee, you've had a good education. You must have mm. learned heaps. Let's take advantage of that. Let's back you this third time. Third time's the charm. In Australia, you would have no hope. That's if you had already lost investor money, well, even once, your chances of, of raising money again are, are vanishingly small. And as a result of that kind of problematic attitude around failure, we don't talk about it. We don't share it very much. And therefore, we don't learn from it as much as we should. It's a little bit like science in the 18th century with disconnected mad geniuses all kind of simultaneously inventing stuff and not sharing, you know, like evolution had to be invented twice, but all sorts of stuff had to be discovered or invented over and over again because they didn't have the sharing infrastructure within science until the kind of invention of the scientific journal and the, particularly in terms of the internet, in terms of the more rapid pace of sharing. And that's kind of where we're at in the social sector, I think, because we don't know how to kind of think about risk and failure very effectively. We then don't share what we've learned through failure very openly and therefore the rest of us don't get the benefit of the brilliant experiment you ran it kind of reminds me of sales the best advice i ever got about sales was your job is to get answers not just mm. yeses mm. you know you might get like one yes out of ten and therefore next time you get a no that's not a failure that's a step towards that next yes you're working through you know it's just maths not everyone's going to say yes so every no brings you closer to the next yes rather than being seen as a defeat, it's actually a success. Well done, you got an answer, you resolved that conversation. On to the next. Whereas, of course, if you take every single no as a personal defeat, it's not the right kind of work for you, obviously. We really need, I think, a, a shift in the way in which we think about risk and reward, particularly in the social sector. This is also what makes us so different from our peers. Almost all our peers, in terms of online fundraising platforms, have as their mission, we need to get more money to good causes. I know this because I'm often on panels with other founders. And so there's this generalized belief that things are mostly fine, but we just don't have enough money to change the world. And so if we could just get a few more people donating who, who are missing at the moment, and we'll do that by making it more accessible or making it sexier or replacing one fundraising method with another fundraising method or what have you. And that's actually not our focus at all. We kind of think there's probably plenty of money in social impact. And I think that kind of social impact funding is a little bit like food. 
which is that there's plenty of it. And the reason that hunger persists is because it's often wasted and badly distributed. Investing in social development is exactly the same. Lots of it, but often wasted and poorly distributed. And in particular, really poorly distributed towards the innovation end of the spectrum, where we actually try new things. Okay, and so you raise money for worthy causes, but is it all philanthropic? Are there options to invest with equity? Does it go that far? Not on startsandgood.com. I mean, equity has just become, you know, we've got the first 17 licensed platforms in Australia at the moment. The issue with equity from a social enterprise point of view is there's nowhere near enough actually invested. Like, we have a pipeline challenge. Ask anyone. The challenge is not enough investable social enterprises. Again, it's not that there aren't enough people willing to invest in investable social enterprises. It's that we haven't built an ecosystem that is... Like, equity is kind of the glamorous endpoint. In some ways, the blockage is earlier. The blockage is getting companies through to the point where it actually would make sense for them to raise equity and make sense for, you know, you and me and anyone else to want to own that equity. Yeah, and and so we're actually it. focusing at the moment on a, on, a, on a crowd lending platform that we're hoping to launch by about Easter next year that will help with that growth challenge that so many social enterprises face where they're hamstrung by a lack of, mostly by operating capital to fuel their growth. Okay, so you guys are feeling that early stage, almost that angel investor and, and yeah, you see it in many models that debt is then sort of the next stage because it's easier to handle debt rather than giving up equity and making those decisions and the governance around it. How will that debt model look? So to be clear, Start Some Good is a hybrid of pre-sale and philanthropy. So we work with a lot of social enterprises who are launching products. And one of our real philosophies is that you should launch how you plan to live. So if your theory is that you are a social enterprise, you're going to make an impact because you're going to offer a great product and service, people will want to buy it. And either in the way that that product or service is manufactured or delivered or the nature of the product itself or the redistribution of your profits, you're making a positive impact on the world. Great. Well, then how you should launch is not by asking people to donate to you because you're doing such a good thing, but try and sell them that product and service at the earliest possible point. You'll learn a lot more that way about whether that product or service is really ready and what the flaws might be that might be holding people back from supporting. And so then hopefully that works and you're in market and you're growing. And I said, the challenge then often becomes you simply can't raise the operating capital you need to do bigger and bigger deals. So we see this a lot in the social procurement space. As you try and move up into like larger B2B deals, it requires more and more capital on hand to support those deals. I'll give an example. We had a company called Mighty Good Undies that launched through Start Some Good about, I don't know, 18 months ago. Very comfortable boxer shorts made really ethically. And they raised about $60,000, $65,000, which is a very solid crowdfunding campaign, but of course not a lot of money to launch a new fashion business. And they've been working really hard for 18 months and doing really well, you know, at markets, getting into a few boutiques, selling online. And they've just nailed the biggest win of their history to date, which is a quarter million dollar deal with Nordstrom's, the department store in the US. But because of the payment terms of that contract, it's going to cost them $115,000 upfront to manufacture and deliver the stock before they get paid out four months later. Or something like that. They just don't have $115,000 sitting around. And the current options in the marketplace are awful, especially for social enterprises. And so that's the kind of scenario that Lend for Good is designed to resolve. Actually, relatively low risk, fast turnaround, very clear growth opportunity. It's unsecured, but low risk at the same time. You'd have to believe that Nordstrom's is going to go out of business to think that you wouldn't ultimately get your money back. I mean, for you guys, you guys are deep enough, but you wouldn't need to do uh, too much due diligence to dig in and see that, that that's a good deal and that these guys will pay that back. You know, there's not much risk on that one. There's, there's a surprising number of enterprises that are kind of broadly in that kind of space with existing deal flow, existing customers, kind of a, a relatively well-validated product. 
but they're stuck at this kind of artisan scale. They're stuck going around markets or in a small number of boutiques or doing a little bit of e-commerce. And I think the big opportunity that everyone's excited about in Australia is corporate procurement, doing, of course, bigger and bigger deals to supply companies with what they need. But those payment terms on those deals make it really hard for people to get across that gap to make that leap. And so we hope that this, but that's not the time at which you want equity. Like it'd be a crazy time for Mighty Good Undies to start selling probably at very low valuation chunks of their company. Mm. They don't need to. And so we think that there's kind of this interesting ecosystem that we need all these different types of capital to sit alongside each other. And then we need to educate the sector and entrepreneurs a bit better about what is the right kind of capital at the right moment. And I can imagine that a lot of people might begin to, over the course of a few years, test new products through a kind of pre-sale platform like Start Some Good, drive their growth by borrowing money you know, sensibly and strategically through Lend for Good. And then ultimately, when they have great evidence and can demand a really strong valuation, and are ready to really go big, uh, might then do that equity fundraiser to really take that next step. And on the that lending thing, side... The other thing to realise just quickly about equity is that the majority of, far, of fast-growing social enterprises in Australia are, are non-profits. They're completely excluded from equity. Like, name any famous social enterprise. The majority are non-profits, not for-profits. Street, Thank You Water, Humanitics. And that's because there's actually, and this kind of brings us back maybe to the question here, why is that? In part, it's because there is still so much more capital available on the philanthropic side than on the investment side. Like Humanitics, just in the last couple of months, have raised $2.2 million in charitable contributions. There's no equivalent. There's not a single case study of a for-profit social enterprise startup at, at an equivalent scale and stage raising anything like that kind of capital to invest in their growth or tech. No one's ever done it. It doesn't exist. And so you, you get things like the Google Innovation Challenge, cool company, lots of money, millions and millions of dollars, but it's only for not-for-profits. Google will tell you they're really excited about social enterprise, but they're still behaving as if charities are the only game that matters. They give $120,000 a year free AdWords to any registered charity. Zero, you know, nothing for social enterprises. Social enterprises are just businesses got to compete with everyone else and pay AdWord by AdWord. Is there a disconnect there? Do people not trust that there is profit and social enterprise can go together? Is that still the blockage? No, they do trust in that. If the blockage is um, carving out this kind of middle space, I think, where we kind of combine those things intelligently, where we might accept some impact for slightly less profit. Humans are, by nature, um, pretty binary in their thinking. We struggle to combine intrinsic and extrinsic rewards in our minds at the same time. That's, and that's just the way we're built. And it's why, for instance, it's much easier to get pro bono legal support than low bono. If you go to a law firm and say, hey, we work with the lows, you know, and I've, I've read specific case studies of this. Charities have gone to law firms and say, we work with this low-income community and we're looking to find someone who would be prepared to provide low-cost legal support to them. Would you be willing to, you know, do for $50 an hour or something to help these people? They're like, don't be ridiculous. I don't get out of bed for $50 an hour. They're like, okay, what about free? Sure, happy to do it pro bono. So that's like deeply illogical on one level that you'd be willing to do something for free that you wouldn't be willing to do for $50. But it's because it's flipped it from the commercial side of their brain to the philanthropic side. They're like, yeah, for sure, we do pro bono work. That makes sense to us. That's charitable. But we don't do legal work for $50 an hour. I'm $500 an hour. Mm. Now, so as soon as you introduce this kind of commercial frame, people struggle to balance the two. I heard a great example in Australia. They're a not-for-profit social enterprise. You'd have heard of them, but I won't name them because I wasn't given permission to share this story specifically, but I think it's illustrative of they were looking to set up a new social enterprise business and they were traditionally more of a charity, had raised the bulk of their funds tax deductibly, but they were really excited about, you know, really committing to this social enterprise model. So they went back to a lot of their donors who give them money every year, $100,000 a year for years and said, 
Really appreciate your support. Would love to have you on board to help us launch this business. Want to do something a bit different this time? Instead of you giving us a donation, would you be willing to make a low interest loan? And they could not get that low interest loan because they could not convince that person to take what they considered to be sub-economic or sub-market deal, even though they were willing at the same time to just hand the money for free. Mm. Social enterprise lives in that space, lives in that hybridized world where we're thinking about the trade-offs between these two dimensions. For us as social enterprise, we're 100% driven to be profitable because without that, we don't get to stick around, we don't get to scale, we don't get to create the kind of impact we want. But we're not really about the profit. We're certainly not about profit maximizing. We're about sufficient profit to allow us to do the work that we believe needs to be done. Every day we make decisions that are not profit maximizing, that trade off profit because we, we don't think it's worth it in relation to our mission. We think it damages or dents our mission in some way or, or by foregoing it in some way, shape or form, we're able to better achieve our mission. We have to grapple with that every single day and most social enterprises do. Oh, look, those are really good insights. That's a really interesting perspective on the Australian sector and, and the issues. What's your vision then? What's your hope for the space in the next five years? Is it sort of shifting donors' perspectives on that side or is that kind of too big a bridge and, and you focus in other ways? We want the same shift in the in investment sector that we want in the philanthropic sector. I mean, to us, it's, I'm not a zealot about this stuff. You know, you get people out there who are deeply suspicious of social enterprises and other people who are deeply suspicious of charities. In some ways, charities are an illegitimate kind of form that companies are the only real thing, the only sustainable thing. I think all of that's ridiculous. We're going to need an all-of-the-above approach, actually, to addressing some of the challenges that confront us. But the thing that I think a lot about and the shift that I want to make is, is just this better, kind of a better relationship with risk and a greater tolerance to invest in, in early-stage projects, both on the philanthropic and the impact investment side. The thing that frustrates me a bit about the impact investment sector at the moment, and I'm happy to say this to everyone, I, in fact, I, I said this in my talk at the Impact Investment Summit last year, is that it's actually repeating the exact same patterns as the philanthropic sector. Impact investors give themselves a lot of credit for doing something that they consider to be innovative. They think the idea of impact investment is innovative. And that helps them get away with not doing any innovative investing. They don't invest in, in innovation. They just consider the act of thinking about impact to be innovation enough. And then the actual money goes into property, mostly. Like over 90% of all, quote-unquote, impact investment in Australia is into property deals. The majority of the rest is into solar and renewable energy projects that have long-term supplier agreements in place. Great projects should definitely be funded. I'm not criticizing, you know, and, and those buildings should be, you know, more renewable, more sustainable buildings should be built. We're not going to avoid climate change by slowly rebuilding all the building stock in Australia. It's the definition of incrementalism. And I just think we haven't actually got enough time for that. The impact investment sector is acting as if we have all the time in the world to slowly work through these issues and figure out the right balance and spend 10 years debating what is a social enterprise, etc. We don't have 10 years. Or maybe we only have 10 years. If, if 10 years from now we're still debating what is a social enterprise, we will have failed utterly. If the impact investment sector wants to make a contribution to the challenges of our current age, they and the philanthropic sector as well are going to have to grapple with the, the fact that we need innovation. We're not going to increment our way out of these crises and we're not going to increment our way to a better world. We need breakthroughs to get there. And breakthroughs only come from investing in, in risky things that probably won't work. I have this real kind of belief that great ideas are almost always disguised as bad ideas. Like good ideas we can all agree on. Good ideas make sense. They're sensible. They work with the status quo. We can all agree on what a good idea is. But we're all going to disagree on what a great idea is because great ideas violate the status quo in some ways. They're non-consensus 
they're a, a unique point of view about the future and about how to get there. And so the great ideas are bundled up with all the actually outlandish ideas, you know, bundled up with all the things that actually won't work. They're, they're almost definitionally not sensible. But it's also not sensible in aggregate for us not to go looking for them and not to be willing to, to take risks on them and not to invest in experiments. We're just not going to get where we need to go. And so I hope as a sector on both sides of that divide, the philanthropic sector and the impact investment sector, I hope that people will emerge. And people are emerging. I don't mean to be too universalist in this. There are obviously individual organisations, foundations and individuals who are taking risks and are doing awesome stuff. It's just that they're a tiny minority at the moment and we need more. Okay, and time is clearly of the essence. And we've spoken about investors and charities and companies and these big groups, mm. but your platform really empowers individuals. So what's one thing people listening at home or in their office can do to make that difference, take that first step? Some of the work we did at Ashoka was really thinking about how do you get more people involved in creating change? And so I think there's a couple of almost even attitude and there's like some deep seated stuff that needs to be in place. You need empathy, first of all, which is why embedding empathy in the school system at the earliest possible point is so crucial. Because if you don't care about others, <laughs> clearly, you're not really going to be, you know, part of these efforts. But that's not enough either. You can't just care. You have to also believe that change is possible. So apathy is also one of the great countervailing forces, of course, of social change. I always think apathy is ultimately the, the opposite of change making. It's not, it's not people who kind of have different politics from you. They're, they're at least in the arena, you know, figuring stuff out being part of the debate, it's the people who have checked out that are perhaps the bigger problem. And then you also need to believe that you can make a contribution to bringing about that change. So I think it always begins on some level with an act of self-belief. I can be part of the change. I have a role to play. I have power and influence. And everyone does. Everyone listening to this does have that power and influence. In a prosperous country like Australia, so many of us have so many ways to impact the world, I think beyond what we ever imagined. And so once you get to that point, you then need to think, what are the, lever, you know, what are the levers in my own life? with which I can make a difference. It doesn't have to mean quitting your job and founding a charity or a social enterprise. It's just been, in the first instance, becoming more aware, more conscious of who you're supporting and the impacts of economic decisions. Is there a social enterprise in the category of product you want? You know, could you support them through your purchases, uh, through the shops you, you turn up to? The next step might be thinking about how you earn your money. Who do you want to work for? How do you want to spend your one precious life and use your unique talents to make a difference? There's lots of incredible companies out there and there's some there are some great growing social enterprises that are recruiting and looking for people right now where could you actually align your talents with what the sector needs what the world needs and then ultimately it might be about is there something missing is there a gap do you have a unique insight a unique belief you know that non-consensus point of view about what the world needs and how to get there i think a lot of great ideas because they're non-consensus you can't wait around for someone else to have them they might never have them. If you have that insight, I think there's a real responsibility to step forward and do something with that insight. But that's really hard. And so that's what we exist to do. We kind of exist to try and get people from that point where they've had that insight or that idea or that flash of inspiration or that moment of deep passion and commitment, and then help them get it out of their head and into the world. And so our belief is that the sooner you can actually start testing in the real world, the better, particularly if, you're, if you've got a business element to that. If you've got a product or service, don't ask people if they're going to buy it. Actually try and sell it to them. Because it's only then that you'll begin to get real insight into whether the market actually wants what you're offering. And so we think crowdfunding is, of course, an amazing, very lean tool to do that, to test new ideas without the expense and the risk that used to be inherent in that kind of a pursuit. Yeah, I think people can use that as an excuse that that power is there. 
It's an excuse to not do anything, to not take action, when in fact, in our modern world that is really focused on the individual in terms of marketing, in terms of shopping and all these sorts of things, that we need to take that power in both directions, the power yeah. of the impacts that we make in, in the decisions we make in, you know, what do we put in which recycling bin? Um, it's easy mm. to say, oh, look, it's just one. But as we've seen with the, um, you know, I've got I've got mixed feelings about everybody focusing on not using plastic straws. It's one small thing. There's plenty of other plastic. But I think it if it gets people to think about one straw says six billion people, and that that equals a big cumulative problem. It's that shift of thinking. And as you said, yeah. everybody, if different people will make change in different ways, but the universal element is that if people have that empowerment within themselves, then that's where change comes from, that individuals um, yeah. can make their choice. And that's the democratic way, right? If the bulk of people don't want that change, then perhaps that's not what society will lead to. But let's leave it up to the market. And that's what you guys are doing. One last thing, and to sort of capture that last element of, of people being empowered, is there a book that you might recommend that sort of captures some of the stuff we've talked about that people could follow up on? There's a, a number of books that I really like that I think speak to the change-making journey in a number of ways. One I really want to recommend is The Pollyanna Principles by Hildy Gottlieb. It's focused on non-profit organisations. It's called the subtitle is Reinventing Non-Profit Organisations to Create the Future of Our World. But it's actually for anyone who's thinking about the future. Hildy's and Creating the Future do brilliant work. Their, their underlying belief is that changing the questions that we ask changes the future. And they think that we mostly ask really bad questions mm. about the future and that that's part of what's kind of ended up with a not-for-profit sector that seems so short-term focused, so incremental, and not genuinely focused on transformational change and solving problems. And I think that's a, a risk for social enterprises to fall into as well. Another one that I read kind of 15 years ago now but had a real impact on me was The Answer to How is Yes, which fundamentally says, you know, often when people have big ideas, the very first question that everyone asks is how. And it's kind of to encourage people to put that question aside. That how is used as a way of dampening down our ideas and kind of putting us back in our box. And that we tend to use how in, in this way that kind of shuts things down. We're not genuinely interested in how we would do it. We mostly want to convince someone that it's, it's probably not possible. If I say, you know, going to end homelessness, you know, how will be your very first question. But it's not usually the best first question, certainly from an entrepreneurial point of view. You need to, as Simon Sinek would say, he's another book recommendation. It often helps to start with why. Says so a couple and then on a kind of more narrative and I love Long Walk to Freedom by Nelson Mandela and I think the social entrepreneurship journey can sometimes feel like I don't know I've been locked in the cell for 40 years probably not but you know his ability to withstand that incredible journey and come out the other side with the grace and humility that he did and forgiveness I think is just an incredible example to all of us and, and obviously I think one of the you know one of the great humans of the 20th century. Wow, some great options there. And my book reading pile is, is growing with every podcast. And I really like that first point about asking better questions. And that's what I'm all about here. And I hope I've yeah. asked some good questions to yeah. help the listeners at home get some insights into what you're doing and, and the space and all that sort of thing. So let's leave it there. And yeah, really hope we can catch up again soon. Thank you so much. I wonder about this issue, you know, you've been a change maker for a long time, you know, mm -hmm. since you were young and, and, you know, I was the same when I was 17, 18 and read No Logo and I was like, change, change, change. Oh, yeah, I loved No Logo. 
Well, that's it. It was a moment for me. And then, you know, I went and studied economics and I was sort of counterculture, but at the same time, very much a, mm-hmm. you know, comfortable private school kid. But this question of change, is it change for change's sake? Like, is there a point where, oh, hang on, we did it. Everything's changed. Like, we're there. So no, my job is I... kind of redundant. You know, do you see it? Is that or is it maybe just that's my job? Always change, always change. And you'll never be happy. So is this, could we rephrase this as, do I believe in utopias? I mean, do I think okay. we'll reach some perfect endpoint? I actually don't believe in stasis. I mean, I think kind of as a, just a natural observation, change is constant and inevitable, just in terms of the natural systems in which we live. And, or even, you know, look at, at cities. This is the debate I used to have, you know, with all my friends who are like, ah, gentrification. I'm like, would you prefer stasis? You know, if you go to choose, stasis would die. I wouldn't choose stasis. It's annoying that all these douchebags are moving into our favourite suburb, but we get to go find some other up-and-coming suburb that still has some warehouses in it or whatever the case might be. The only alternative to change is stasis, and I don't think any of us would really choose that. I also think that things will always need to be reinvented. I read a book about, um, I can't remember the name of the book, but this is very particular quote stuck with me when I was really into, and I'm still really into kind of getting young people involved in democracy and engaged, and it said every generation will need to reinvent their relationship with democracy to suit their times. And I think that's true kind of across the board. We are at the moment reinventing our relationship with democracy, reinventing our relationship with schooling, reinventing our relationship with work, reinventing relationships, you know, with extending relationship status to people who are previously excluded in a variety of ways. Um, And it's hard to imagine some future point that won't require that ongoing reinvention. I think that sounds like kind of a scary dystopian future. So I wouldn't call it change for change's sake, but I do think that there will always be work that needs doing. Yeah, I really like that. That's an interesting shift of perspective where it's change, evolution is inevitable. So let's ensure that it's driven in the right direction, that it's not driven by greed, that it's driven by equality. Exactly. Like the future doesn't just happen. The future is an amalgam of all our individual actions and decisions that we make in this moment, in the present. I've always thought that, you know, it's that classic quote of the best way to predict the future is to invent it. And so I think that if you're not conscious, you're living into a future that's been invented by other people. But the future, in a way, by the time it arrives in the present, it's been pre-designed by the people who are actually consciously working towards some set of outcomes. And the default outcome in the system at the moment, the system that we've built, is, is, is things like profit maximization, is the default focus of an awful lot of people. And so if we don't have, kind of have a counterbalancing focus where some group of us are kind of designing the future around justice and equality, fairness and opportunity, by the time it arrives, we're not going to have those things.